Well, amen. Welcome, everybody, to Evergreen. I'm Jeff. Uh, it's my privilege that I get to share uh, with you this morning. I'm one of the pastors here uh, at Evergreen. How's everybody doing this morning? Yeah, you woke up, you got an extra hour of sleep. How many people actually got an extra hour of sleep, or did you just wake up an hour earlier? Right? Because like, my body clock functions that way. Like, I'm up at a certain time every morning, kind of whether I like it or not. And it decided that this was still the time, right? And so I didn't really... Uh, anyway, it doesn't matter. Um, the clocks are back. Highly controversial thing, right? You know, because everything in today's day and age is a highly controversial thing, right? And so uh, we might as well fight about whether the clock should stay back or jump forward or not, and whether it's good for us or bad for us or whatever. Um, We have been spending some time uh, looking at Paul's famous love passage in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. And it's a passage that I think is, is really often overused, misused, and because we overuse it and we misuse it, we tend to graze right past it. You ever, you know, had that happen when you're reading scripture and you just sort of skip past like the genealogies, right? Different, like the entire book of Leviticus, right? Just things like that, that we just sort of graze past that we're like, ah, that's not really all that important. I'm very familiar with that kind of stuff. And so we just graze past it. But the reality is, is the genealogies in the book of Leviticus and this first Corinthian passage in chapter 13 are actually essential to you understanding God's love and the way that scripture presents God to us, his attributes, who he is. Like for instance, you need to understand the book of Leviticus because then you understand the law. You hear the word the law a lot in the Old Testament. Very difficult to understand the Old Testament if you don't understand Levitical law because that's the law that they're referring to. And so we can't actually just graze past this stuff. But often when we get used to uh, something that's overused and misused, we tend to just sort of move on by. Yet... This passage is critical to our Christian lives. It's actually central to us understanding God's love and how that love we receive from him flows out from us. Like Scripture actually says that God is love. So some will say that love is an attribute of God. I would actually argue that it's not an attribute, that it's actually the best way to describe who he is. God is love. That's 1 John chapter 4, verse 7. That's what Scripture tells us. And Paul says that out of the three most essential aspects of the Christian life, right, faith, hope, and love, that love is the greatest of these essentials. We can't live faithfully with hope in our lives if we don't first receive God's love and then learn in our sanctification walk, that's what it's called, our justified justification is when we're made right with God. Sanctification is the journey that all of us Christians are on. We're progressively being sanctified. And then one day we'll be glorified, meaning brought into heaven, living in heaven, in his presence. But that doesn't happen until he comes back again. And so we're in this process of sanctification and knowing and receiving his love and learning to love back is the key piece to understanding who God is in your life 
and living the Christian faith. Love is the identifying factor of how the world knows that we are disciples of Jesus Christ. That's John chapter 13, verse 35. That's interesting, isn't it? Because, because some would say that, that it, it isn't love, actually. It's our acts of kindness, right? It's, our, it's how kind we are, our acts of kindness towards others that shows people that we're disciples of Jesus. Or It's about how we go about caring for the poor. That's what shows people that we're disciples of Jesus. Or, or it's our perfect doctrinal ethical beliefs, our understanding of scripture and our statements of faith. That's how we show people that we're disciples of Jesus Christ, right? No. Scripture says it's how we love one another that sets us apart from the rest of the world. That's how they'll know you're his disciple. The love of God being lived out toward each other. This is how the world knows that we're different. And this is extremely attractive. It's very countercultural. Actually, it's all of those things because it's supernatural. The kind of love that Paul expresses in this passage in Corinthians is not possible through human abilities. You can't work harder at it. You can't try harder at it. You can't uh, just uh, attain it somehow through study uh, and so on because it's, it's actually very countercultural. It's supernatural. It's not possible without a close intimate relationship with the one who is love. In today's passage, in today's passage, I want to point out a, a distinct shift that happens in how Paul is approaching teaching on this subject. Now, remember, just as a quick recap, chapter 13 is in between chapter 12 and chapter 14. Brilliant, right? Do you ever notice that? Chapter 13 is smushed right between chapter 12 and chapter 14. Uh, he's, he's essentially doing this on purpose, right? They're all interconnected. You can't read chapter 13 without reading chapter 12 and chapter 14. I would actually argue you can't read chapter 13 without understanding the context of the entire book and that you can't read the book without understanding the context of the entire Bible. Hence why the scriptures say you should read me right? He writes this passage about love because within their expression of community, the Corinthian church's expression of community, and specifically their expressions of the supernatural gifts, the spiritual gifts, they're actually struggling to be loving. But if you were to do like an interview with the, the first century uh, Corinthian church, they would say that they're probably the most loving church there is. And so Paul has to take this approach because they think that they're loving. Now, I've been a pastor for many years now. I'm not going to tell you how long because it'll tell you how old I am. But I can testify to this exact problem that Paul is dealing with. Often, as church communities, we struggle to recognize who we actually are. And what I mean by that is how the community around us actually recognizes us compared to how we recognize ourselves. 
There's often a perspective disconnect from our church community to our local community. One of the questions I love to ask and I'd love you to ponder is if this church disappeared tomorrow, would anyone notice? And I'm not talking about the physical structure of the church because this is just bricks and mortar. The church is the people. And if Evergreen disappeared tomorrow, would anyone in our community notice? In the context of this passage, the Corinthians believe that they are expressing themselves in a very spiritual, loving way. And they truly believe that how they're living as a spiritual community is showing the love of God to others. I want to give you a picture of the Corinthian church. This is your rockin' church. Like, they have the best worship. They have the most gifted speaker, the best pastor in Apollos. They were planted by the Apostle Paul. Like, they have the lights, the glitz, the glamour. They've got programs that entertain your kids. The kids loved attending the church in Corinth. The church in Corinthians had everything that checks our boxes off of entertainment in church world. And yet Paul is approaching things saying, you think you're loving, you think you're reaching others, but you have a perspective disconnect in who you actually are. In reality, the church in Corinth, if you read the whole context of the book, is spending an awful lot of time separating themselves into groups. The really spiritual people and the not-so-spiritual people. You know, those who speak in tongues, those who function in the gifts and those who don't. The rich and the poor. Paul's correction of communion, which we're going to celebrate today, is all about the separating that's happening in the Corinthian church over the rich and the poor, they're not intermixing together, they're separating one another. They've misunderstood what the love of God accomplishes when lived out in faith and trust rather than status and power. This is why Paul feels the need to correct their understanding of love because without true biblical Christ-centered love, all communities will fall into this trap, this perspective disconnect, the trap of segregation, the trap of judgment and lack of sharing Jesus with the world, essentially the trap of looking and being really spiritual, but living your life very far from God. Paul started his list of love attributes with two things. Right away, he wanted to tell you, these are like the two main things that love is. Love is patient and love is kind. The two essential ingredients for true love to even begin to happen. But notice a quick shift in this passage. Paul quickly jumps from what love is into what love is not. And there's a contextual reason for this. How they're living out their faith as a community and functioning in the gifts lacks biblical love. And it's this lack of love that makes their spiritual gifts useless, Paul says. 
Paul, Paul says, so useless that it's annoying, not helpful or life-giving in any way, just self-centered and annoying. It's a gong. It's a clanging cymbal. It's a creaking gate. And so Paul takes the approach of using their behavior. So remember this, right? Paul is always writing to a specific audience. This is often how we misuse Paul, unfortunately, in doctrine and in the life of the church. We misquote Paul because we don't always understand what it is that he's navigating, say, in the church in Ephesus or the church in Corinth. And, and so we quote Paul as saying this is this universal thing across the board when often it's a correction that he's giving to an individual church. And that's what's happening here. He's using the Corinthians' actual behavior as a perfect example of what not to be. This is why he shifts to what love is not. He's essentially saying to them, and this is important for you to hear, folks, you are, what you're doing, how you're living, how you're doing community and faith and the gifts, that's not love. That's not what love looks like at all because their expressions of faith are not reflecting who God is. Instead, they're reflecting sin. Imagine this. The church functioning in the gifts, entertaining the Christians, and it's sin. Not faith. Not love. Their spirituality is saturated with envy, boastfulness, and pride not love. There are things that, that are the, these, these things are the exact opposite of love, the opposite of who Jesus is in our lives. And these behaviors, they lack the power of God. They're a poor witness, essentially, to the world. Like, I actually think no one would notice that the Corinthian church disappeared. They make the church look exactly like the world, and in many ways, worse. So, so this morning, I want to take a quick look uh, at the first three things that Paul says are not part of love. So I know the series is called Love Is, but then this sermon is called What Love Is Not, Part One. Tomorrow, next week, we're going to go into part uh, two. Now, these three things that Paul talks about, they often saturate our lives and we don't even actually notice. It's really interesting in how we go about living our faith because these three things that Paul talks about, envy, boastfulness, and pride, are actually usually a centerpiece of how we go about making decisions and how we go about living our lives. And we don't even notice because it's the way the world is all around us. Envy, boastfulness, and pride, they kill our love, they kill community, and they cause disunity. This concept of envy and how damaging it can be is, is saturated actually throughout scripture. Starting right away in the book of Genesis, we see envy become a huge problem for humanity. In Genesis chapter 3, you're probably familiar with it because I just taught on it not that long ago. We see that envy actually becomes the central reason that humanity chooses sin over God. We wanted something that God had. The knowledge of good and evil. 
Like, why would God keep that from us? Our envy of knowledge caused us to fall into sin. And then in Genesis chapter 4, you see this this narrative continues, right? In Genesis chapter 4, verses 3 to 5, it says this. This is about Adam and Eve's first kids. You've heard of them, Cain and Abel. In the course of time, it says, Cain brought some of the fruits of the soil as an offering to the Lord, and also Abel uh, also brought an offering, fat portions from some of the firstborn of his flock. The Lord looked with favor on Abel and his offerings, but on Cain and his offerings... He did not look with favor. Now, what's the result of that? Cain was angry, and his face was downcast. You see, Cain's envy or his jealousy for his brother Abel caused Cain to be so angry that he murdered his brother. In Exodus, God gives the nation of Israel 10 basic commandments to live their lives by. When you actually look at scripture, it's not actually that difficult to understand the way that God wants us to live. He kind of tends to package it for us because I think he understands that that's how we function as human beings. And so I'm going to package, here's sort of the 10 main things that you should probably be doing or not doing. In Exodus chapter 20, where we find the 10 commandments, verse 17, listen to what he says. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You ever like looked at your neighbor's house and went, wow, like I wish I could have that. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife. We're not going to talk about that part. Or his male or female servant, his ox or donkey or anything that belongs to your neighbor. Coveting something is envy. And God knows where envy gets us. Nowhere but sin. In the story of a king named Saul and an upcoming king named David, we're given another example of where envy gets us as human beings in 1 Samuel chapter 18, verses 6 to 9. It says, when the men were returning home after David had killed the Philistines, so David, you know, the David and Goliath story, this had just happened, and so now they're returning back. It says, the women came out from all the towns of Israel to meet King Saul with singing and dancing, with joyful songs and timbrels and lyres. As they danced, they sang. Now listen to what they, like, imagine you're King Saul and you're like, yeah, that's right, we conquered the Philistines. Like, look at how amazing of a king I am. I deserve this praise, but this is what they were singing. Saul has slain his thousand and David his 10,000. So the scriptures say Saul was what? Very angry. This, this refrain displeased him greatly. They've credited David with tens of thousands, he thought, but me with only a thousand. What more can he get but the kingdom? And from that time on, Saul kept a close eye on David. You see, Saul became jealous or envious of David because of how the people were giving praises to David. Saul, who's the king, is envious of a little shepherd boy. And look where that got Saul. He was removed as king, 
and David would become one of the greatest kings that Israel had ever had. Envy, folks, always leads to a fall. You can read a lot more uh, of these passages in Scripture, but sometimes you'll, you'll see it translated as envy, sometimes jealousy. Jealousy makes us fear to lose what we possess, and envy creates sorrow that others have and we have not. So they'll interchange those words together. They're actually slightly different, but they both lead to exactly the same thing. Let's look at a few more passages real quick. Matthew 27, verse 18. For he knew it was out of self-interest that they had handed Jesus over to them. What causes self-interest? Envy. I wish I had that, and it's in my self-interest to receive it by doing this. Envy was the reason Jesus was killed. Galatians chapter 5, verse 26. Let us not become conceited, provoking, and envying each other. Paul warns us not to become envious, not to become conceited, not to become self-centered. Ecclesiastes chapter 4, verse 4. We dealt with this passage a few months ago when we went through the book of Ecclesiastes. King Solomon says, And I saw that all the toil and all achievement sprang from one person's envy of another. This too, he said, is meaningless, a chasing after the wind. Our envy for each other is what often drives sin in our lives. And it's subtle. These are the reasons that Paul corrects the Corinthians by telling them that love is never envious because envy always causes a fall. Love, folks, you can write this down. Love is content. Love doesn't live in envy. Love rests in contentment. In the church in Corinth, those who practice the gifts of the Spirit would often lord it over those who didn't, right? Because I speak in tongues or I speak prophecies, I'm better than you, I'm closer to God than you are, and so you should be seeking what I have because I'm just better than you. This causes others to then envy, and it breaks up unity in communities. Do you see the pattern here? Envy creates disunity in the church and it drives people to live a self-centered life. And that, folks, is just not what love looks like. Now, the second thing that Paul says love is not is boastful. How many people boast on a fairly regular basis about your children? I don't, for many reasons. I'm kidding, sort of. Ephesians chapter 2, <laughs> verses 8 to 9. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourself. It's important, right? Our salvation is not achieved by our works, by what we do. 
It's given to us freely by grace through faith. It's not something that we achieved ourselves. It's a gift from God. And and this is why Paul stresses this. It's not by works. Because if it was by works, you'd be haughty, right? You'd be like, look at what I'm doing. I must be a good Christian. I created my salvation because look at the good works that I do. And Paul says that's not where your salvation comes from at all. And the reason for that is so no one can boast. It's a work of God, not a work of the individual. When we receive salvation from God, it's important to live out our salvation with fear and trembling rather than boasting about what we have found or what we think we've achieved. Love, folks, is rooted in humility, and a humble person never boasts about anything. Boastfulness and pride, which is the third one, kind of go hand in hand, don't they? Usually when you're boasting, it's rooted in your pridefulness. Pride is super subtle. Like, I'm not talking about the, the typical, like the, the really obvious things of pride. Pridefulness is super subtle and often expressed just in stubbornness. In a needing to be right all the time. And pride, this subtle sin, is the number one reason in Scripture of why we as human beings struggle to live our lives close to God. Often we don't see it, we don't notice it, because many things in our life are driven by our pride. Essentially, the way Scripture talks about pride, it's really super simple, actually, in Scripture. Pride is when you're lacking trust in God. Whenever you're not fully trusting God, whenever you're lacking trust in God, whenever you're taking things into your own hands and not relying on God, to the Bible, that is pride. You see, it goes beyond just the the normal, subtle things of life. It's do you trust God to feed you tomorrow? Do you trust God with all of life? Whenever we deny our dependence on the creator of the heavens and earth, Pride is the very root and essence of what's driving us to sin. Because pride denies God, and it places our trust in ourselves and our trust in others rather than God. Listen to what Scripture says about pride. Now, I use a Bible program that saves me a ton of time. I don't really recommend you buy it because it's super expensive, but um, I can just type in like a word, right? And it will literally search all the scriptures and the 3,000 books that are all within this program for anything that has to do with pride. And it was pages and pages and pages of results of how often the scriptures deal with the issue of pride. Proverbs chapter 3, verse 34. So I'm just giving you kind of a snapshot. It says, he mocks proud mockers, but shows favor to the humble and oppressed. Proverbs 16, verses 18 to 19. Pride goes before destruction. You ever heard that saying, right? Pride comes before a fall. Pride goes before destruction. A haughty spirit before a fall. Proverbs 16, verses 18 to 19. Better to be lowly in spirit along with the oppressed than to share 
plunder with the proud. You see, pride causes us to fall, to pull away from living our lives in God's presence. In Matthew chapter 23, verse 12, for those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. Pride leads to God humbling you. Anybody been there? It's not a lot of fun to be humbled, is it? James chapter 4, verses 6 to 7. But he gives us more grace. That's, that's positive and needed. He gives us more grace. That's why the scriptures says, God opposes the proud, but shows favor to the humble. So he then says, submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. So God opposes the proud. So how can you be living a prideful life and be living connected to God's presence? Do you see the, you see the disconnect here? If God opposes the proud, how can the proud be with God? This is, this is actually pretty straightforward and serious, right? If God opposes the proud and shows favor to the humble, the humble are living in God's presence and the proud are not. But notice in James, he connects submitting to God as an answer to pride. Because pridefulness will naturally well up in our sinfulness, our natural sinfulness, right? And so James says the way to combat that pride is to submit to God your whole life. We have to resist the devil in order to live in humility, he says. Because pride can be so subtle. It's not just the obvious prideful things like thinking you're better than someone else. Scripture says pride is whenever we think we can live independent of God. Interesting, uh, in the book of Isaiah, Isaiah shares a little bit of sort of the root problem of what happened between God and Lucifer, the devil. And pridefulness was the key of why the devil fell. Listen to what Isaiah says in chapter 14, verses 12 to 14. He says, how you've fallen from heaven, morning star, which is one of the names of the devil, son of the dawn. You've been cast down to the earth. You who once laid low the nations, you said in your heart, listen, listen to this. I will ascend to the heavens. I will raise my throne above the stars of God. I will sit enthroned on the mount of assembly on the utmost heights of Mount Zephon. I will ascend above the tops of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. Essentially, folks, the devil wanted to build his own kingdom. Isn't that what we do? We have this choice that we get to make in our faith, right? That we live into the kingdom that Jesus Christ has ushered in to our world, where his effective will is being done. That's where his kingdom is. Or we can choose to build our own kingdoms, which makes us no different than Lucifer himself. 
So you can see why Paul would want these things to not be part of our lives. Because envy, boastfulness, and pride, they're destructive. They're not loving, and they pull us away from a life with God at the center. Thank goodness that God loves us so much that he gave us his son. Do you believe that? Because like, when I say a statement like that, I'm like, yes, thank goodness, because Jeff is not so good at love. But God is. And so I'm going to live my life saturated in the love of God, which makes me want to jump out of my seat and tell the world, because I can't do this on my own. I need Jesus living in me so that I can let his love flow out to others. Because it's the love of Christ and the spirit living in us that draws us away from the posture of envy and pride. You see, without the love of God, we would not be able to experience the love that Paul is presenting in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. That's why when we read it, we feel like crap. If we really read it and don't just skim by it, we feel fine when we just skim things, right? But if you really dig into this passage, you're like, oh my goodness, I'm not doing much of this. You see, our natural disposition is pride, but when we experience the love of God, it has the power to change our disposition. When Paul writes to the church in Corinth about what love is, have you ever noticed something important here? Paul is not just correcting their understanding of love. He's teaching them about God's love. Because God's always patient and kind. He's not envious, boastful, or proud. You see, this passage in 1 Corinthians 13 is giving you the attributes of God. This is who God is. This is how God loves. So when you read 1 Corinthians 13, and it doesn't match up with your beliefs of God, something's gone wrong. Interesting in Christian theology because we look at an Old Testament God and we're like, he doesn't seem to fit. Read it closely. He fits beautifully. Someday we'll... Well, I have preached on that before. You just got to go a few years back. Our natural disposition, folks, is pride. But when we experience the love of God, it changes our disposition. When Paul writes to this church, he's showing us who God is. And we can then learn to receive God into our lives so that his love can pour out from us. And this is not something that anybody can take away from you. Listen to Romans chapter 8, verses 38 to 39. Paul says this, For I'm convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation. Listen to that. That's important. 
right? Nor any powers. The devil can't steal God's love from you. The world can't steal God's love from you. He says, he says, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. That's powerful stuff. Again, that's like get out of your seats like happy time, right? You're all smiling behind the mask going, yes, I'm resting in that love. It's amazing. I see it in your eyes. 2 Corinthians uh, 13, chapter 11, the second book that he writes to this, this interesting church. He says, finally, brothers and sisters, rejoice. Strive for full restoration. Encourage one another. Be of one mind. Live in peace. And the God of love and peace. That's how he's describing God. The God, he doesn't say, you know, the God of wrath and destruction. He says, the God of love and peace will be with you. But did you see the posture that he's asking us to live? Brothers and sisters, rejoice. Like that means like be excited that you're at church and that Jesus saved you, right? Strive for full restoration, encourage one another. This is how we interact with one another. Be of one mind, live in peace. And then the God of love and peace will be with you. Ephesians chapter two, verses four to five. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in our transgressions. We're a bunch of risen people, people who were dead in our transgressions, but have been made alive in Christ. And he says this, my favorite verse, it is by grace that you have been saved, right? Not by works, not by anything we accomplish, but purely through the love of God. The human condition of sin often pulls us away from God in subtle ways, but when we learn to live under God's loving grace, we can begin to notice our envy and our pride. This is actually the entire point of Paul's love chapter, to point out to the church what God looks like and what living in community is to be like. Love starts with patience. Certainly, you folks need to be patient with me. Love starts with kindness. It never envies another. It's never boastful. And it's always willing to admit we're wrong. It's always willing to not be full of pride. Love, folks, puts others first. Worship team can join me up here. This is how God calls us to live as a community of believers in a world that is full of envy and pride. He calls us to be different, to live our lives dependent on him and to receive the loving sacrifice of God's love through Jesus. We can't do this interdependent of God. We can only do this 
in dependence on God.